Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Alexis Goldsmith. And I'm Bria Barthel. Welcome back, Alexis. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a report from Mark Dunley on this past Saturday's rally at the Capitol to call for a ceasefire in Gaza and the liberation of Palestine. Then Lex Figuero, one of the founders of Saratoga Black Lives Matter, talks with Moses Nagel about the recent elections in Saratoga, the trial of Daryl Mount, and other issues that Saratoga BLM is highlighting right now. After that, retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson joins us in his earlier time slot for our weekly discussion, this time comparing the weather on past Thanksgivings and forecasting what's in store for us this week. Then Elizabeth E.P. Press and Victoria Karachi bring us news of a protest this past Saturday by the Save Burdette Birth Center Coalition outside of a St. Peter's fundraiser urging the attendees to allocate funds specifically to the birth center. Finally, on a lighter note, Carol Roberts from Troy Public Library recommends four books for young readers by Native authors that offer different, broader perspectives on Indigenous peoples. But first, here are a few headlines. 19 months before the June 2025 primary, Albany's Chief City Auditor Dorsey Appliers has announced she is running to be the mayor of Albany. Appliers, a Democrat, is running to succeed Mayor Kathy Sheehan, who is expected to retire at the end of her current term. Common Council President Corey Ellis is also expected to run for mayor. The Times Union reports that more than three months after the pandemic struck New York, leading to a months-long shutdown of businesses, nearly 40,000 state government workers have not fully returned to their offices, including roughly 2,500 employees who work completely remote. In Albany, the hybrid schedules have brought many state workers back at least part of the work week. Unions are pushing to expand at-home work. Musicians on a Mission, an annual one-day music festival supporting the Capital City Rescue Mission, will take place on Sunday, November 26th. The event, featuring nine local bands across two stages, will occur at the Capital District Irish American Center in Albany. The Washington Post and other sources report that on Friday, average global temperatures were briefly more than 2 degrees Celsius, or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial levels. The International Climate Accords are shooting to try to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius in order to avoid climate catastrophe. Global warming has been exceeding that 1.5 degree target on a frequent basis since May 2023, and Hugh will be talking this a little more in his segment. Each November 20th is designated National Transgender Day of Resilience to celebrate the love that makes trans families bloom and to honor transgender people whose lives were lost in acts of anti-transgender violence. A 2021 report from the Williams Institute at University of California, Los Angeles School of Law concluded that transgender people, especially people of color, were over four times as likely as cisgender people 
to be targets of violent crimes. And according to the FBI, in 2022, the incidence of crimes against transgender and non-gender conforming folks increased 30%. And that's it for headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute your time, talents, or financial support, see the donate button at mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us 518-272-2390. Now to our first story. On Saturday, November 18th, about 250 people rallied at the Capitol in Albany to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. A group letter a group later marched to Congressmember Paul Tonko's office. Mark Dunley was on the scene and brings us this report. A crowd of 250 chanted for a ceasefire and liberation of Palestine at a peace rally at the state capitol on Saturday, November 18th. Speakers condemned both the genocide taking place in Gaza and the U.S. role in financing and promoting it. The groups marched to Congressmember Paul Tonko's office to demand that he support a ceasefire. Hi, my name is Zara. Um, I'm a part of UAlbany's Students for Justice in Palestine. I'm here on Saturday, and we are putting together we put together a rally to stand for the injustices going on in Palestine today and for the past 75 years. Obviously, you're calling for a ceasefire, but you know what would you like to see both Israeli and American government do at this point? I want to see the Israeli government and the American government stop the killing and murdering of Palestinians in Palestine. I want to see the aid stop going to Israel and aid go towards helping people get better and helping people start their life again because people just dying and dying and not being starving to death is not humanitarian at all. There's no reason for this type of killing to happen. If there's a fight over land, there's so many other ways you could go about it. You know, what are some of the things that the average, you know, American doesn't really understand about the, the present situation? The average American does not understand that this has been going on for 75 years. Everyone thinks this is a religious battle. It's not a battle between Muslims and Jews. It's a battle between Palestinians and Israeli Zionists, because there are many Jews that are against this. For example, there's Jewish uh, Voices for Peace here today that also stand against this um, occupation. A lot of people also don't realize that in Palestine there are a lot of Palestinian Jews, Palestinian Christians, Palestinian atheists, Palestinian Muslims. There's so many different variety. How, how is uh, this issue playing out on the University of Albany campus? You know, um, there are different people from different backgrounds, so, so how has that played out? So on New Albany campus, I've noticed that there are a lot of people that go around posting posters around the podium that say, uh, that have pictures of supposed kidnapped people by Hamas. And then there's a constant battle of students ripping them down. And then there'll be people who stand for Palestine that will put up posters and then vice versa. The people that are for Israel will rip them down. It's just a constant battle of ripping down each other's posters. There's no peace and there's really no voice. And what motivated you and, and other students who actually come down to the state capitol to organize this protest? So I myself have been very involved in what has been going 
going on in Palestine since I was a child. It's something my parents fought for. It's something my grandparents fought for. So now uh, SJP has started in UAlbany just a couple months ago. And I put myself in the position where I was like, I have to fight because at the end of the day, it's I do care about my own life, but I care about the lives of others more because we live in this world together and I don't like seeing people get hurt. My name is Maceo Foster. I am uh, the co-chair of the UAlbany chapter of YDSA. Uh, and we're here uh, to stand in solidarity with and support our uh, local UAlbany SJP. Um, and also, of course, the people of Palestine. And, you know, what would you like to see happen at this point in terms of the, the conflict that's, you know, the bombing that's going on about Gaza? Obviously, the immediate um, demand is a ceasefire. But, uh, you know, as was already stated, it doesn't end at a ceasefire uh, long term and not just long term, but even in the immediate, there needs to be an end of uh, U.S. tax dollars subsidizing the Israeli military. There needs to be um, an end to the occupation in Palestine. There needs to be an end to the apartheid system uh, that has been uh, recognized as an apartheid system by every uh, leading human rights or international human rights organization. You know, that includes Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the UN Human Rights Council. Um, and there needs to be an end to the occupation of the apartheid and an end to military funding. Uh, of course, again, like I said, ceasefire is the immediate demand, but it's just a start. It's, it's, just, it's a beginning. It's not an end. Um, because if there isn't a ceasefire, we're going to be back here in another decade, another five years, calling for another ceasefire. Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! Palestine will be free! I'm also an organizer with UAlbany's YDSA. I'm also a queer Jew. I know that solidarity means that none of us are free until all of us are free. And a free Palestine is necessary for true liberation. I grew up learning Zionist ideology, and I learned nothing of the true history of the state of Israel's foundation in any Jewish spaces or my public school classes. But I promise it just takes a little bit of critical thinking, research, and humanity to become an anti-Zionist. It is a fact that the state of Israel was founded through persecution, suppression, and subjugation. From 1947 to 1949, Jewish militants violently displaced around 750,000 Palestinians, ethnically cleansed and destroyed 530 villages, and massacred around 15,000 people in the Nakba, or catastrophe, in order to create a Jewish state in a land full of Arabs. We are once again seeing this ethnic cleansing as more than 1.5 million people in Gaza have been forcibly internally displaced. And we are seeing a genocide as more than 12,000 Palestinians have been brutally murdered by Israel. We cannot sit idly by as we watch history repeat itself. Jewish people's collective trauma was and continues to be weaponized to justify horrific war crimes. The Ceasefire now! Ceasefire now! Ceasefire now! I'm Ra, I'm, I'm a Palestinian girl that goes to Albany, and I'm standing before you today with a heart full of grief and a, a voice full of power. Three weeks ago, I was standing in this same place reading a poem that I wrote expressing my and other Palestinians' feelings about this genocide. Three weeks later, I am standing here speaking on the same issue again, but this time, the situation is worse and the death toll is higher. 
I am shattered by the knowledge that as I speak, my brothers and sisters in Palestine are dying by the minute and our government is not calling for a ceasefire, but instead is sending billions of dollars and is using our tax dollars to support this genocide. I may not, I, I may not be able to physically stop the violence to single-handedly end the suffering, but I can raise my voice. I can stand in solidarity with my people, amplifying their stories, their struggles, and their unwavering resilience. I can educate, I can advocate, I can, and I can inspire others to join in the call for a ceasefire. And to every Palestinian's child whose laughter has been stolen by fear, to every parent who tucks their child into bed between the sounds of bombs, to every elder who longs to see a peaceful dawn over their homeland, I say your pain is not invisible. Your humanity is not forgotten. We stand together today demanding that our government calls for a ceasefire. I refuse to let the feeling of worthlessness define me. Instead, I will let it infuel me. My, de my determination to become a beacon of hope, a voice for the voiceless, and an advocate for a future where every child can grow up without the fear of being bombed nor killed, where every family can rebuild what has been destroyed, and where justice and peace prevails. We stand together today to call for a ceasefire, to demand a ceasefire, Ashley, because thousands, thousands of Palestinians, elderly men, women, and children have died over the past, since October 7th. And that is not including the, the, the past Palestinians who have been killed since, since, 19, since, uh, since 1948 when the occupation started. Thank you all for being here. It's a cold day. And thank you to Palestinian Rights Committee, Jewish Voices for Peace, the Albany PSL, the Albany Students for Justice in Palestine, Saratoga BLM, our own YDSA comrades, and the brave Palestinian American activists for organizing and mobilizing today to end this hideous war crime that is the siege of Gaza. My name is Julian. I co-chair the Capital District Chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. And I am here to tell you that we stand with the cause of Palestinian emancipation and self-determination. And that our place is with the working class and the dispossessed fighting back. All six, seven, eight, Israel is a terror state. Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. A longer report on this rally, marked full, is available on our website. Thanks to Mark and other producers for the continued coverage of peace efforts. For early, earlier segments, visit our website, www.mediasanctuary.org. Next, Moses Nagel talks with Lex Figueroa, one of the founders of Saratoga Black Lives Matter, for the organization's view on the recent Saratoga elections, the trial of Daryl Mount, and other issues. James Montanino, who was the figure that, that had been so kind of antagonistic to you and your group over the last couple years, lost, but so did Kristen Dart, who was the 
candidate who had most closely sort of aligned with the interests of Black Lives Matter. So I'm curious what your analysis is of the election, of the results, to public safety commissioner. So, you know, um, obviously we are, you know, and me personally, I'm very, uh, you know, happy that uh, James Montanino didn't uh, win again. Um, clearly, um, we are, you know, it's very unfortunate that uh, Kristen Dart didn't win. Um, at the same time, Kristen Dart did pull over 2,000 votes um, out of 8,000 votes of people who voted. Um, so, you know, um, she didn't do too bad for a third uh, third line candidate uh, who actually came into the race late. Um, so, you know, we're actually happy with that. And I think that actually shows um, that, that there's at least 2,000 or some people, more than that, but of the people who voted um, who, are, who are actually um, maybe within values of us um, and within values of actual public safety uh, and change in our community. Um, so that's how I feel about that. I mean, Tim Cole winning, uh, we knew that they were going to end up also pretty much splitting up a little bit of the vote. You know, James Montanino got some votes. Uh, Kristen got some votes and then Tim Cole ended up winning, you know, unfortunately. So Chris Churchill and the Times Union pitched this as a win yep. for civility, you know, for, for politeness over people who, who make too much noise on either side. Do, do you buy that as an analysis? Yeah, civility is a funny word, you know, and it could be used against people, uh, you know, to tone people down and to completely hush people's values and their uh, perspectives on things, um, especially when it comes down to things involving the police and the city. I do believe that people were interested and, uh, you know, worried about things going on. Also, I know that it was a fear-mongering tactic used by the GOP. You know, um, there hasn't been a city council meeting that's even been interrupted or disrupted since May this year. So for six, seven months straight, there was no disruptions and the GOP just kept on running with it. So if, if that was true, that that's what the people thought, uh, the people have been bamboozled, clearly. Besides that, the Democrats also split the vote uh, in the mayor um, seat. So, you know, um, I do think it played something in it, but I don't think that that was all of it at all. Let's switch gears and talk about a couple different uh, legal cases that have been going on. So the Daryl Mount case just ended. A few weeks ago, that's the young biracial 21-year-old right man who died yep. under some cloudy circumstances 10 years ago, right? 2013. Yeah. And this was actually a civil suit, right? A wrongful death civil suit by, brought by his family. Yeah. So the Saratoga police were acquitted of, of any wrongdoing in, in the case. Is that the, what the decision was? Yep. Yeah. Got a found not guilty of uh, being the cause of death or because of uh, negligence um, to cause his death or whatever. But at the same time, a lot of very questionable and unorthodox conduct by the police chief at the time and the, the police department in general came to light out of this trial. Do you agree? Oh, it did for sure. I mean, we've seen, uh, we are different histories of, uh, you know, officers who committed sexual assault. You know, officers who have uh, been on duty stalking, you know, people, um, officers who have sent sex messages of naked pictures of women, inappropriate pictures all over the office, criminal investigations that have never been done, um, people getting slaps on the wrist for even even being accused of rape. Uh, so, yeah, we, hear, we heard a lot of things um, about this department. What's next? Is this case over for the time being? Um, is there anything else that follows from this? I mean, this case is over. Um, you know, I spoke to Patty Jackson, um, Daryl Mount's mother, and, you know, I don't think that she wants to keep on pursuing anything. She's done with it and she's suffered enough. 
uh, doesn't want to have to go through another trial or anything like that. You know, they could appeal if they wanted to, uh, but I don't believe that's going to be happening um, anytime. You also have been in court. Remind us again what the status of your legal issues are and what charges you're dealing with right now. Yeah, right now, you know, we're dealing with uh, disorderly conduct as well as a blocking of governmental administration. Um, and right now we are in the process of going back and forth with motions. Are these from a protest or a city council meeting? City council meeting. Charges that were filed actually by James Martinino. So, uh, he made a big point at the press conference right before the election that he had not arrested any of the protesters. He'd only issued them, them summonses or tickets to appear in court. So is that accurate in your case? Uh, turn myself in to be arrested. Um, and, uh, with handcuffs on me, uh, getting fingerprints and a mugshot. So, uh, in my book, on my record, uh, shows I got arrested. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, I never heard of being handcuffed and not arrested. So yeah, I, I was arrested. We already filed motions to dismiss. The judge didn't completely, uh, agree with everything we we're saying, but did agree with some things in our, uh, filing for dismissal. So actually, my lawyer did a sub subsequent another uh, motion. Um, so now we're waiting. To, we heard, just heard an answer from the DA's office. The DA's office is pretty much saying the same thing that they were saying in the uh, answer before this. Uh, so now we just have to see what the judge says, and then we'll go back and forth with more answers, uh, more filing of um, things. So, you know, we're just doing paperwork right now. Uh, no actual appearances happening this moment. What's on the horizon for Saratoga Black Lives Matter? What I know you guys have sponsored a protest calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. What are the issues on your plate in the near future? We're going to actually continue uh, standing in solidarity with Gaza um, and the Palestinian people. Uh, so we will be having more events for them to, you know, once again, stand in solidarity because it's important and needs to happen. And I don't see any other group in Saratoga Springs doing that right now besides Skidmore. Um, in which we are a part of their events as well. Uh, but in the, the wintertime, we will be doing a Christmas event at the Saratoga Rec Center, right next to the Jefferson Terrace, handing out gifts, doing professional photos for families, food, drinks, um, all that for free. One of the things we have planned, we also have a uh, campaign of trying to push our city to um, adopt the emergency response team, you know, to respond to mental health crises, overdoses, and other nonviolent things that are happening so that we don't have to have just police showing up to these things. We actually have professionals who know how to deal with these things and can maybe actually de-escalate to where maybe somebody doesn't have to be arrested and nobody has to be harmed. That's the biggest thing I would say that we are working on. Uh, we also make sure that these uh, 50 points that were uh, adopted in 2020 are actually adopted and ratified. Uh, we've been waiting for that for some years now, uh, fighting for it. We do have the uh, Civilian Review Board, which we'd be very proud of, but we know we got a far way to go. Uh, so we're going to be focusing on that as well as GOTV. We have two years from now uh, with these um, people that are going to be in office. You know, we're going to be working on trying to get them out of there. Uh, again, people in there who are really um, here for some real change in our community. I wanted to touch on the Stop Cop City activism that I, I know you've also been involved with. And that was just back in the news this past week. I also know that a bunch of the people that have been charged under these incredibly big RICO charges, sort of unprecedented for political protests, just had court dates down there. Is that what that was about this week? That was going on, but also there was a event where people were meeting at the uh, forest out there, um, at the land where they're supposed to be doing Cop City. For what I've seen, um, you know, people were harmed um, by the police for peacefully protesting and exercising their rights. What's your involvement? You've, you've been there 
yeah, me and my involvement would be, you know, I've been there in, in solidarity uh, with them, you know, and it is sad. You even have to be worried that if I say that I was at, the, at any of these things that, you know, you, you can maybe be charged, you know, as a terrorist um, because, you know, words like solidarity, uh, mutual aid, and even canvassing um, has really been under attack by the uh, GBI out in um, Georgia. So I've been canvassing and things like that, trying to get the ballot on there, you know, and trying to get the referendum on there. But, you know. Apparently, you know, some of it was maybe in vain or maybe not um, because, you know, we did all that work walking. We were walking in like 105 degree weather um, in the middle of Atlanta, you can imagine, in summer, Mm -hmm. uh, in August, walking all through communities that we didn't even know, uh, country roads, you know, um, getting dropped off by Ubers and just like staying out there um, trying to get these signatures. And we we did it honestly. You know, I mean, we honestly went to people's doors. We talked to them. They signed uh, because they were in agreement that even if they were with Cop City or whether they were against Cop City, that there should be a vote. Uh, the people should have a say-so where their money goes and what happens in their community. Um, so, you know, that's where we are right now. In closing, is there anything that we didn't touch on, anything that you want to add? Or? Regardless of whoever holds the seat of the mayor um, or public safety commissioner or the chief of police, Jersey Black Lives Matter is continue striving forward for our community. And we continue um, exercising our rights, uh, whether that means doing direct actions, whether that means showing up at city council meetings, um, we also will not be tone police. That whole rhetoric of civility uh, is a very dangerous and it's a very dangerous word, um, very much. Um, and it can be used against people to marginalize people. And that's exactly what they're doing now. Uh, it's called fear mongering. Um, and, you know, it's sick and it's disgusting. And, uh, you know, once again, it can put us into danger, you know, and take away safety from us uh, in our own community. And that's it. Thanks to Moses Nagel for getting Lex Figurio's update on Saratoga Black Lives Matter matters. You can hear the earlier reporting on our website. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Alexis Goldsmith. And I'm Bria Barthel. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady and W-O-O-A-E-L-P 106.9 FM Albany, plus streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by joining our team or just by telling a friend. Sharing is caring. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And now joining us once again is retired National Weather Service meteorologist, Hugh Johnson, for our weekly discussion of weather and climate. Welcome back, Hugh. Well, hello there, Alexis, right? (laughs) Yes, it's Alexis. Uh, How are you doing, Hugh? I'm doing great. Well, we were wondering, Hugh, um, even though it's kind of cold outside, it's start to, starting to feel like winter's coming on. Um, there was a report last Friday that the average global temperature might have actually reached or exceeded more than two degrees Celsius or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit above the pre-industrial global average temperature. Now, the two degrees limit is um, far above the 1.5 degree Uh, Celsius rise that we are trying to limit our climate uh, change to. So what do you think about uh, this report? 
I think it's scary. Um, I don't. It's a preliminary report, and it's going to take a couple. It's going to take a couple weeks to really verify it, believe it or not. But the trend is there. I mean, even if we didn't hit two degrees Celsius, we're trending dangerously close to it. And uh, of course, the Paris Accord said we really don't want to go there, but we're going there. Um, it's. Uh, I, I, I all I can say is that we are not doing what we're we're supposed to be doing. We're not. We're still emitting way too much CO2 into the atmosphere. And I'm just not seeing, okay, so what, one of the things that <clears throat> comes out is that in order for us to go back to 1.5 and below temperature above the uh, pre-industrial global average, we have to emit, uh, uh, cut CO2 emissions by 40% in the next six years. And I just don't see that happening. I just don't. Why? Because, and I'm not going to get political, but polls are showing that by next year, the Democrats could lose not only the presidency, but, you know, they could lose it all. And we know where that's going to go. So if people are going to be voting for Republicans back in, we're not going to see, we're just not going to see the climate change uh, trends that we need. So, yeah, it's very scary. So now some of this two degrees Celsius was probably brought on by the very strong El Nino that's brewing and it's still strengthening. That probably added a few tenths. So we can, we can, we can throw that into the equation. But even so, it's still very, very disturbing. I've heard the terms change from climate change to climate warming to climate crisis and climate catastrophe. But now on a lighter subject, Thanksgiving. <laughs> well, as Hugh pointed out, it's not lighter when you think of all the food we're likely to eat. So <laughs> can you tell us about some of the more interesting weather events that happen on Thanksgiving Day in the Capital Region in past years? Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's a good one, yes. Uh, well, in, way back in 1971, probably most of you don't remember, and I wasn't living here, but I do remember, uh, Albany got buried under almost 22 inches of snow on Thanksgiving, a major nor'easter. The biggest one of that winter came roaring up the coast uh, after we had a very warm October and very beginning of November. The, the pattern had changed, and this storm clobbered us. Uh, snow, I think snow rates were two, three, four inches an hour, several hours, and that's throughout the day. So, yeah, that was a huge one. And then more recently, we had a 10-inch snowstorm on the day before Thanksgiving in, in 2014. I remember we just barely left town before that hit. And, uh, and then in 2018, we only hit 18 degrees, no, 19 degrees on Thanksgiving Day with wind, making it and the low was eight, making it the overall coldest Thanksgiving Day in history, it wasn't the coldest low, but it was the coldest average and, and max temperature, coldest max temperature. And we've been trending kind of chilly in the last few Thanksgivings with a few exceptions. Uh, we can't seem to get much above 53, and it looks like we won't this year. We'll probably be in the 40s. By the way, tomorrow morning, we're all going to wake up into the teens. I, it's already in the upper 20s, and we're going down to the teens tonight. So our coldest morning coming through. So, yeah, Thanksgiving. And by the way, in 19 and 2004, we hit 64 on Thanksgiving morning, and then we got cold in the afternoon. A strong cold front came through, but the warmest Thanksgiving was 67 degrees way back in 1933. So, Hugh, I heard there might be a storm late Tuesday into Wednesday, and we might get more than just rain. So, what can we expect to see for the next few days and for our travel plans around Thanksgiving? Yes, uh, good point, Alexis. Bring up, uh, yeah, there's definitely going to be a storm. It's going to, we haven't had a whole lot of precipitation this month. This will be our wettest storm. This one's loading up with Gulf moisture. 
The storm, the main storm is tracking to the west, but the problem is there's going to be plenty of cold air wedged in place when the storm arrives, and it looks like we're going to get a secondary low forming off Long Island, so we will never get into the really warm air on the surface, but a lot there will be probably enough warming to eventually turn into a cold rain, but when it first gets in here, it's probably going to be a little burst of snow, and I think everyone is going to see at least a coating on the ground, perhaps some slick roads starting around this time tomorrow night in the Capital District, and probably transitioning to sleet and rain but as you get further, if you go north and east, it's going to be it's going to take longer. It could be uh, up to one to four inches of snow for us. A coating to an inch, one to four if you go north and east towards Glen Falls and Vermont, and you're going to have perhaps a, a, even a little bit of freezing rain thrown in the equation. So tomorrow night will be a dicey time to travel if you're going north and east of the capital region, especially t- before midnight. Things should improve later on, but but it'll still be rainy, and then f- the storm should get out of here on Wednesday slowly. Well, it won't be a great day, but I think the steady precipitation will be out of here by the morning. And, uh, you know, by that point, there won't be any more problems with traveling. But, yeah, it's going to be a little a touch and go. Nothing like 1971, though. We're not going to have anything like that. So that's the good news. And then on Thanksgiving Day, it looks like a seasonable day with temperatures in the 40s, a bit of a breeze, and some sunshine and dry temperatures. So a good day for Thanksgiving. And then it looks like now it should stay relatively calm to the weekend chilly but not really cold we were looking at a possible storm but now that's kind of falling apart uh but we might have watched something for monday might be some some snow but it's still way off so i want to go back to what you said for tuesday into wednesday by wednesday morning when a lot of people are traveling it should be rain yes it should be rain certainly here on south it really i mean i'd be shocked if it wasn't the only place it might be a little bit uh uh, questionable would be like some of the uh, sheltered valleys, Glens Falls, east towards Vermont, there could still be a few little sh- uh, like untreated roads that could be a little slick. But I think for the most part, travel should be it should be just wet and then drying out. So hopefully, no big major snarls. But if you're going Tuesday night, really rethink that for Tuesday night north and east of the Capital Region because it could be a little little tricky. Uh, thanks for that forecast, Hugh. I want to just bring it back to that report on climate warming uh, for just a moment, yes. the report that says we've briefly exceeded two degrees Celsius in warming. Can you tell us about who published the report, um, You know what it actually says, and where folks can find it online? Okay, I, I found it in the Independent, and it actually, believe it or not, that I was going to mention this and I forgot, but thanks for reminding me, the data set came out of the Euro- European model. The European model, which really does a much better quality control versus our global forecast system model, otherwise known as GB, GFS, and other people call it other things, but the GFS, uh, it's, it's definitely, a, a, in my humble opinion, a better model than the GFS. I just, that's the way I see it because I've been working with these models still, even when I'm retired. And uh, anyway, so the report is pretty credible, I think. It, it may be a little high, but it's probably, unfortunately, sadly, close to truth. And again, we can we can add El Nino added a few tenths, but it's very, very disturbing, and it really shows that climate change could be happening faster than you know a lot of people feared. Well, thanks, Hugh, and maybe we can ask our wonderful engineer Cena to uh, link that independent article or the report in the show notes. Um, anything okay. else? We got 30 seconds. 
Well, just uh, I want everyone to have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, again, at least the Thanksgiving day will be nice. And I'm, I'm, and again, the travel, except for Tuesday night, shouldn't, shouldn't be too bad. And the weekend looks okay right now. Might, if you're coming back Monday, keep an eye out. There could be something on Monday to watch for perhaps snow. It might be cold enough for snow. Still too early to say. But have a great Thanksgiving, everyone. So, hey, Hugh. Having a yes. weekly chat with you is one of the many things I'm thankful for this year. I love well, talking you. with you. And Excellent. thanks for joining us once again. We look forward to talking with you again next week. Have a great Thanksgiving. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And now back to politics or continuing on politics. On Saturday night, November 18th, the Save for Debt Birth Center Coalition organized a protest outside of St. Peter's fundraiser in Troy, to urge the donors attending the gala to allocate their funds specifically to keep the Burdett Birth Center open. Victoria Carazzi recorded at the protest and Elizabeth E.P. Press edited this piece. The Save Burdett Birth Center Coalition held a protest outside Franklin Plaza in Troy, New York on Saturday in their continued effort to keep the only birth center in Rensselaer County open. This is Jessica Hick explaining more about why they are protesting. So this is St. Peter's biggest fundraiser of the year at Franklin Plaza. It's their holiday kickoff. And um, we're here tonight to ask the donors that are in attendance to restrict their donations and redirect them to fund Burdett Birth Center. The CEO, Stephen Hanks of St. Peter's Health Partners, has said that we cannot fundraise our way out of this problem. Um, so it makes us wonder, what are they doing here tonight? If, we, if, if they're raising funds for other things, is the birth center just not a priority to them um, to raise funds for? So we're asking that they use their fundraising power and fund Burdett and support Burdett for Rensselaer County and beyond. There's good energy among everyone here to protest. There's a and huge outpouring of support. Big group. Big group is here tonight to try to keep her dead open. Lots of kids and babies, too. It's a very hopeful, family-friendly vibe. But the people going inside don't seem sympathetic at all. Victoria Carezzi was at the protest and spoke to various people. What are people doing like as they're being approached? How are how are some of the donors at this event reacting? The donors are avoiding they're avoiding eye contact. There I actually just just now saw one nurse from Burdett approach a man who was heading in and he side-eyed her and shook his head no. And it's just really disheartening. There was a group of fathers that showed up to protest as well. This is Dan Pfeiffer talking about why he wants to keep Burdett Birth Center open. So yeah, I'm, I'm holding a sign that says, Dad's for Burdett, and I'm among a crew of like, what, 50 people who are out in a very cold evening <laughs> trying to remind people about the importance of the Burdett Birth Center and trying to get this fundraiser to adequately value this asset that our community has and I'm I've got a Burdett baby strapped to my chest one that you know very well this is Rosemary <laughs> Ursula Irons Pfeiffer and she's snoozing away and yeah we had her at Burdett we had a great experience she was our second there and I hope that Burdett thrives for many more decades 
many, you know, as long as possible. We need that asset. Yes. And if you had one line, one message to say to the people inside, the, the people who donate to St. Peter's, what would it be? Well, I mean, healthcare is a human right. We need not to treat it like a business. And I don't know if there's much more to it than that. Yeah. I love all of what's going on here. It's great street performance, and very creative protests. The street performers Christoph Di Maria and Dio Kaufman comically emphasize the need to keep her debt birth center open. My wife Mary is having a baby. The angel Gabriel told us to go to the Burdett Inn to have this baby. And they are telling her that there is no room at the inn. No room? If I ever see that angel Gabriel again? Oh! (gasps) Please, please help us. Send us someone who can restrict their donations to the Burdett Birth Center to keep it open. Taryn? Tamaskic adds to the call to keep Burdett funded and open. St. Peter's is telling everyone that there's not enough money for midwife-led care at Burdett Birth Center. And I personally gave birth to my son, who I'm holding right now, at Burdett um, almost two years ago. They closed this birthing center. The women of Rensselaer County are going to have to travel fairly far or give birth in an emergency room, which is unimaginable this day and age. It's not fair um, based on the socioeconomic uh, breakdown of what's in this county. It's it's people that really benefit from having this facility here. And it's completely unfair to the people that live here to take that away. When I gave birth, I felt really supported and safe, and I had several midwives that helped me through the um, birth, and it was an unremarkable birth, which is all you can ask for this day and age. Safer debt! Safer debt! Ashley Supp, who also gave birth to her son Ben at Burdett, helped organize the protest. We have folks from the Save Bird at Birth Center Coalition who have aligned the sidewalk here around the Franklin Plaza. And what we are doing is making their donors and top sponsors well aware of what's going on with Burdett and whether or not they decide to give to, to this year's fundraiser, we believe that they should give to save the birth center, so to earmark their donations for the birth center. So yeah, we're out here, we're looking to talk to folks and interact with the folks who are attending. As donors to St. Peter's filed into Franklin Plaza, protesters line the streets around the building. This is Jen Baumstein, who also gave birth at Burdett, describing the scene. You know, it's kind of one of those situations where they're just pretending like they don't see us. Lots of windows up. We've gotten some disapproving shakes of heads. Um, it's kind of confusing because it's it's something that they could really make a difference with, uh, but they seem to be finding it a nuisance when we're on the correct side, we're in the right space, and we're not going in. We're just kind of on the sidewalk. You know, one of the things that I'm hearing and I agree with is just to earmark the funds for keeping Burdett open. Right? That's what, that's possible. They can do that, and if they have the deep enough pockets, they can do it. What we're looking at right now is some folks walking across the street from the Best Western, pushing people away, and uh, ignoring the folks who are right there. (laughs) How are people reacting? How are the donors reacting? 
uh, mostly ignoring us. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of shame, as there should be, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, as, yeah. as someone who gave birth to my son in Burdette, I'm a little bit floored at being treated with such contempt by people who donate to St. Peter's. So yeah, like, I find that to be floor? kind of jarring. And I just, for the audio, want to state that you're holding your son in yeah. your hands, and people are still acting really rude and dismissive. Totally. It's, Absolutely. It's kind of stunning. little bit about your sign today. Uh, well, it's a check made out to Burdette Birth Center for $2.7 million. And the memo says, save our birth center. One of the unique parts of Burdette Birth Center is that they score high in midwife-led care. This is midwife Betsy Mercagliano expressing the need to fund Burdette. Well, St. Peter's is raising lots and lots of money for all their programs, and what we're asking is that the money be raised specifically to keep Burdette open. That all these donors who are paying between $1,500 and $20,000 a plate restrict their funding, restrict their donations specifically for Burdette. And one of the chants, one of the chants was something about the memo. Can you explain what that chant is? Any donor can put in the memo on their check that the funding will be is to go toward Burdette and only Burdette. Beautiful. Thank you. Save Burdette. Save Burdette. Save Burdette. Please restrict your donation to Burdette Birth Center. It's Rensselaer County's only birth center. We appreciate you. Thank you. I had options because of Burdette. We're in front of the Franklin Plaza and no one will help us have this baby. Oh, Jesus Christ! Oh, oh. Jesus Christ! I like That's that That's a great name. name for a baby! Jesus Herbert Christ! Jesus, Jesus H. H. Christ! That's what we'll name the baby. Oh, oh he's coming! Save for that My friends, enjoy your evening. Don't be troubled Thank you to Victoria Carezzi and Elizabeth E.P. Press for that report. For more information, visit www.saveburdettebirthcenter.com. We will continue to follow this story and to hear earlier coverage about the battle to keep Burdett Birth Center open, visit our website, mediasanctuary.org. On to our last segment, if the limited one-dimensional representation of quote-unquote Indians at Thanksgiving bothers you, here are details about four books, both fiction and nonfiction, by Indigenous authors that Carol Roberts recommends for young readers. 
This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm back for my monthly chat with Carol Roberts, Young People's Services Librarian at the wonderful Troy Public Library and the wonderful Carol Roberts. Welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Oh, thank you for having me. It's so good to see you. It's so good to see you, too, and we're talking in November, which, you know, with Thanksgiving coming, our thoughts are about Native Americans in part, but you have books that are take different takes on Native Americans. So start us off. Okay, well, the first book that I want to talk about is a picture book. It's called Encounter, and it's written by Brittany Luby, and she is um, a first-person citizen. This is about a chance encounter between a native fisherman and a sailor from a nearby ship. Um, This is supposed to be a take on or an imagining of how um, the explorer Jacques Cartier's um, experience back in the mid-1500s when he came to America and ended up trying to claim it for France or parts of it for France. And so this is um, the author's conception of what it might have been like if um, they had come here to meet the native peoples first instead of coming with the idea of colonizing them. So it explores, the, as I said, explores this uh, chance meeting, um, and it's illustrated in the most beautiful gouache painting, which I learned is an opaque type of watercolor, and it's lovely, brilliant colors. Um, but they meet as two people and two equals. Um, so you have the sailor from the ship and the fisherman. Meanwhile, um, as they're meeting, um, you have things around the environment making observations about the two of them. And at one point, um, they're swimming, playing games with beluga whales, and one of the whales thinks to himself, oh, what a, what a great pod they would make um, because they get along so well. And so through this encounter, um, it is found, of course, that they're more alike than they are different. And the author, in the back, there's an author's note which explains the history and includes how um, Cartier kidnapped, actually, this is a fact, two, um, two fishermen, um, native fishermen, and brought them to France. And they were kept there for over a year before they were returned. And the thought is that he um, got information from them about the land and the waterways, um, and things that would help them with their, um, you know, their plan to claim the lamb for France and their exploration. There's also an author's reflection on what he, why he wrote what he did. And it also includes um, this quote, which I thought was great, which says, uh, talks about the importance of, quote, not displacing others in serving ourselves, unquote. What reading level would you say that is? Um, I'd say this is probably K through third. And she's not kidding about the beautiful illustrations. The colors are just magnificent. It shows kids swimming in the ocean and looking out, deer looking out as the ship is pulling away. Beautiful book. Thanks. Thanks. If I could, let me just read the very, the very last passage. You see a silhouette of animals, the ship off in the distance, and a warm campfire. And it's, it reads, moon watched sailor and fisher fall asleep. She shone on their ten fingers, she shone on their ten toes. Moon listened to their two hearts beat. Ba-boom, ba-boom. She heard the beauty of all living things. 
That's beautiful. I like the idea of the moon watching us. I think I like that idea. Okay, and the next book? The next book is also from a Native author, and it's called Indigenous Ingenuity, a Celebration of Traditional North American Knowledge. It's written by Deidre Havrelock and Edward Kay, and she is a Native author. It's a new book which marries scientific discoveries and inventions along with a history of Native America. This is a Native take on the exploration of North America, and it lists so much factual information, and it really goes into detail that you wouldn't see in in a regular history book, but it's really a blending of scientific information and discoveries by indigenous, well, I I should say developed by, or things which were developed by indigenous cultures. It's an incredible resource. So it really, it's looking at the discoveries from an indigenous perspective. Because of course, history is written by the victors. In the back, there's all kinds of information, what we call back matter. There's a listing of all the cultural areas and peoples which are referenced from the Arctic to the subarctic, from California to the Great Plateaus and Great Basin. There's also a large ecological take on on all these things. There's photographs of um, artifacts. And I noticed as you're flipping through, there are some activity suggestions going on too? Yes, this book is um, just full of resources. Um, So it's a great book for introducing Native American history, but also American history. It's, I would say, ideal for ages K through three. I think it could actually go a little higher than that. Great. And the next book? Let's see. The next book I have is called Res Ball. And this is a young adult book, I would say, for ages 12 and up. And it takes place on a Chippewa reservation. And it's called the Red Lake Nation, which is in Minnesota. And it's about a teen who dreams of being a pro basketball player. And it's a story about a boy dealing with grief and losing his brother, who died the year before in a car accident. And he's trying to deal with his grief and at the same time um, find his identity. He's trying to prove to his father, who didn't have much faith in him, that that he's capable and, and honorable. And from the cover, it looks like it's about basketball. It is indeed. This would be a great book for teens who enjoy sports fiction. And some aspects that the book deals with, um, of course, is racism. And there are realistic teen characters which offer a window onto life on a reservation, you know, as a young adult. For all these reasons, I think this would be a great book for high school students, especially anyone who enjoys sports and graphic novels and dating. Is it a graphic novel, or are there some illustrations in it, or...? It's not a graphic novel, but the character loves graphic novels, is discovering romance, and has got a sheer love of basketball, which um, appeals to so many people. That's terrific. And in our last couple minutes, the final one? The last one, um, this is by Tracy Sorrell, and I reviewed a book of hers last year, and this is another one of hers. It's called We Are Grateful. And it's got bright, um, bright gouache watercolors again. <laughs> and it conveys um, the modern life of the Cherokee people. 
We see them engaged in traditional crafts, making moccasins, playing stickball, which is similar to what we call lacrosse. Um, but it's celebrating the history of their people, and it's organized by seasons. And with a change of each, we see the word atsalaheliga, which means we are grateful in Cherokee. It's nice to have something about Thanksgiving and indigenous people that isn't just, oh, isn't it nice that they fed the, the settlers? Yes. There's a lot more. There's a lot more to the story. Um, we've only ever had half the story and not even... <laughs> not even necessarily the truth, but be that as it may. What I love about this book is there is a Cherokee, what they call a syllabary, which includes a key to the written language. Um, apparently, each symbol stands for a complete syllable. So it's fun to go through the pages, and at the bottom, you can find the Cherokee symbols, um, and so you can decode the words. Um, so, so it's kind of like a puzzle, which is fun. Great. And those four books, again, were Encounter, Indigenous Ingenuity, Resball, and We Are Grateful. Full details of authors and titles will be in the segment description on our website. Carol, if people wanted more information or help with picking other books, how do they reach you? They can call us at the main library, or they can stop in to the young people's room. And any, anyone who's behind the desk can help them find um, whatever they're looking for. Okay, and that was Carol Roberts, Young People Services Librarian at Troy Public Library. You can also check the website, thetroylibrary.org. The word the is an important part of that URL. And this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks, Carol. Thank you so much. Another of the many things I'm thankful for this year is my chance to talk each month with Carol Roberts and her Troy Library colleagues, Ian Houck and Laurie Dreyer for their book recommendations and updates on all the great library activities. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Alexis Goldsmith, co-host for this episode. And I'm Bria Barthel, co-host, segment producer, scriptwriter, and headline contributor for this episode. Our engineer this time is the amazing Sina Bazilahiki. Sina, we appreciate you. We want to thank all of the other volunteers who made this episode possible. Other contributors to the today's episode are Mark Dunley for headlines and segment production, plus segment producers Moses Nagel, Elizabeth E.P. Press, and Victoria Carezzi, and of course, Hugh Johnson for his weekly segment. Let's make this a two-way communication. We want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson, Mo Hudson Mohawk Mag, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in Wednesdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile. Have a good Thanksgiving.